I'm Larissa, and I want to help you find the best strategy for communicating the magic and wonder of your jewelry brand so you can thrive by doing what you love and filling the world with beauty and creativity. Welcome to the Joy Joya Jewelry Marketing Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Larissa Worstiak. Through this podcast, I aim to empower and inspire jewelry entrepreneurs and professionals so they can thrive while adding more beauty to the world. I'm passionate about digital marketing for jewelry brands, and I'm excited to share my passion with you. As we all know, jewelry is joy, so I'll gladly seize any opportunity to talk about it. This is episode 160, and today I'll be sharing my interview with Wendy Pease, an expert in global marketing and entering new marketplaces abroad. Wendy is the owner and president of Rapport International, a translation and interpretation services company that specializes in marketing translation. Throughout her career, she's worked with hundreds of companies to help them communicate across more than 200 languages and cultures. Wendy's the author of the book, The Language of Global Marketing, as well as the host of the Global Marketing Show podcast. In this episode, we discuss the potential that global marketing holds for jewelry brands specifically. What are some of the most common mistakes she's seen in the marketplace, as well as the success stories? How can you successfully tap customers in other countries, whether you're a solopreneur or multi-million dollar jewelry brand? How can you effectively communicate the emotional resonance of your jewelry when there's a language barrier? We cover all these questions and more in this fascinating episode, so keep listening. But before we get to the solid gold of this episode, I'd like to take a moment to remind you that this podcast has both an audio and video component. So you can either listen on your favorite podcast platform or watch the interview on YouTube by searching Joy Joya. I love creating this content as my act of service for you, my awesome listeners, and you can support the podcast for free by taking the time not only to subscribe, but also to leave a rating and review on iTunes, which helps other jewelry dreamers find it too. Let's discuss some recent news related to jewelry or marketing. Each week, I share my thoughts about three relevant articles, and you can get those links by visiting joyjoya.com sign up. Once you're on the VIP list, you'll receive our weekly digest filled with new episode announcements. First, I saw this really fascinating article from marketingprofs.com called How People Want Brand Messaging to Make Them Feel. As you can tell from the title, it's all about what consumers want from a brand when they interact with that brand. What kind of feeling do most consumers want to have? So according to a recent survey from Attest, 57% of respondents say that brand messaging, they want brand messaging that makes them laugh or that entertains them. And that's what's really appealing to them right now. I thought that that was so interesting that consumers really wanna have fun. They wanna have a a positive and uplifting experience when they're interacting with a brand and less seriousness. 47% say that brand messaging, they want brand messaging that makes them feel motivated and inspired. And more than a third, 34% of respondents, Say they want messaging that's educational, 
thought-provoking or reassuring. Honestly, I think a lot of jewelry brands today take themselves a little too seriously. And in reality, today's consumers want an element of fun when they interact with a brand. Do you wanna know how to have more fun with your jewelry marketing so that your customers can experience more fun? Well, shameless plug, you'll wanna register for my webinar on February 21st at 1 p.m. Eastern time through the Jewelry Ecom Annual Conference. And I'll put that link in the show notes. I will be presenting on this exact topic and I hope to have fun in my presentation. So I highly encourage you to check that out. The second article comes from psfk.com and it's all about Amazon's first physical clothing store and how they're providing a glimpse into next-gen retail. Even though this is about a clothing store, I still think it's relevant for jewelry brands, especially those with a brick and mortar footprint or those looking to pursue more omni-channel sales opportunities. This is all just about the future of retail and how consumers are going to expect to shop in the coming years. So e-commerce and technology giant Amazon is opening its first ever physical clothing store called Amazon Style. This is definitely an interesting insight into how brick and mortar retail will be changing and evolving in the coming years. According to the article, quote, the company has indicated its new physical store will offer up to double the number of available styles as traditional stores. The increased capability will be powered by smart technology and intelligent inventory management tools that remove friction and streamline stocking enablement, end quote. I personally, from a consumer shopper perspective, think this is awesome because lately when I've been going shopping in brick and mortar stores, I feel, and this might be a trend you've noticed too, that physical inventory is just down in general. So it's really interesting that Amazon is going to be implementing tools that will help them maintain a high inventory in a really smart and thoughtful way. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this comes about. The PSFK research team has been following the trend of retailers that are blending omni-channel offerings and innovative technology offerings, as well as features that enhance the in-store experience. And they see, quote, a promising and convenient future for the retail industry. And my last article is from mediapost.com and it highlights the findings of a just released 2022 edition of independent PR firm Edelman's annual trust barometer. They found that businesses are now the most trusted institutions worldwide. I thought that this was extremely fascinating. As a jewelry business, you have to kind of make up for consumers' distrust in things like government and media, because today people trust those things less and they actually have more trust in businesses and expect businesses to be trustworthy and to kind of share signals of trust and connection with consumers. So that's really like a top priority thing to keep in mind in all your interactions with customers. A quote from the Edelman study says, business must now be the stabilizing force delivering tangible action and results on society's most critical issues. Societal leadership is now a core function of business. That didn't necessarily blow my mind, but it really 
puts the lens and the spotlight on the fact that businesses have to serve as this model of trustworthiness and transparency and really be interested in connecting with customers in a genuine and authentic way. That means businesses like yours have to fight harder than ever before to earn and maintain customer trust in their interactions with you. Your customers likely are coming to you with this distrustful, hesitant mindset just because of the attitude in which they approach other institutions. Um, so it's kind of bleak, but it's also such an opportunity for you as a business. In all your marketing efforts, you can focus first and foremost on building trust, showcasing user-generated content, customer reviews and testimonials, showing authentic behind-the-scenes content, being transparent about your supply chain, etc. As I mentioned, if you want to get the links to the articles I share in this segment of the podcast, you can become a Joy Joya VIP by visiting joyjoya.com slash sign up. Without further delay, let's get to my interview with Wendy. If you'd like to learn more about her book and podcast and her services, you can find the links to these resources in the show notes. Hello, Wendy. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you as a guest today. So thank you for coming on and joining me. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you, fellow marketer. Awesome. So tell our listeners a little bit about how you first entered like the global marketing space and why are you so passionate about it? Good question. I am so passionate about it because I've lived internationally. I lived in Mexico and Taiwan and the Philippines when I was a child. And I know what it's like to be the different one. I mean, when we lived in Taiwan, we were living in a small agriculture uh, community. My dad was in international agriculture research and they just put a center in there. And so the town we lived in had no TV, no running water, no electricity, and they had never seen blonde-haired kids before. And so, you know, people would come over to me, the kids would come over and want to touch my hair and touch my skin just because it looks so different. And so uh, from that, I learned that even though people speak different languages and they have different cultures and they have different experiences, people are, people are all people you know, and you can form friendships, even if you don't speak the languages. And, you know, I'm really passionate about helping people communicate across languages and cultures. Um, And I got into it, I guess it was, you know, time in the making. Uh, Well, uh, let's talk about my business is uh, Rapport International. And I bought it 17 years ago, because it looked like the perfect the perfect coming to the perfect storm of experience, my experiences in running the business. And that was, had something to do with culture and language. It had something to do with business to business services, and it had something to do with helping people. That sounds Um, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So it aligns with a lot of my values and it's a lot of fun. And I'm sure that passion that you have also fuels the podcast that you do about global marketing, the book that you wrote. Tell us a little more about, about those two things. Sure. I, uh, my, my COVID project was to write a book. I had had that on the, you know, dreaming list of things to do for years. And what I found is that there are a lot of companies that don't even think about going international. 
And there are free grants out there. There's free supports from the Depart Federal Department of Commerce and from all the states. Um, so you can get consulting and you can get money for free to help you export. And that's because our balance of trade is so far off. We bring in so many more goods and services than we export. And so I wrote the book that talks about the, the opportunity. I mean, what's out there to support you, how you think about doing it, how you do a company strategy, how you think about which, which countries to even go into. And then it's, it's a changing world with the internet um, making goods and services accessible internationally. You have millennials who are traveling more. You've got uh, higher disposable income in uh, across a bunch of different measures of different countries. It's a perfect time to go international. So I wrote the book that explains all that and then gives you a path on how to go about doing it. And then the podcast is a lot of fun because I'm talking to people who are doing it and they do it in all different kinds of ways. So it's called, you know, the book is The Language of Global Marketing. You can buy it on Amazon or any of the book places. And the podcast is uh, The Global Marketing Show. And it's on all the podcast plays. So if anybody's interested in being on it, uh, you can certainly apply through our website. Otherwise, you get there's some, I mean, darn tough socks is on there. Somebody from PepsiCo, somebody from Disney, uh, you know, so all sorts of people that have been fun to talk to. Yeah, two really amazing resources. And I'll link to both of those in the show notes for our listeners. And I'm excited to like dive into some of the, the things that you just mentioned that were in your book. But I would love to know your business. What specific services do you offer your clients just so we can get like a better idea of how you support um, people? Okay, thank you for asking. Yes, we provide language services which is anything from taking one language to another, except for language teaching. We don't do that. You know, I'll give referrals to things I recommend or people I recommend. Um, but we do written translation and spoken interpretation. Few people outside the industry know the distinction between those two terms. So if you learn one thing from this podcast, <laughs> learn translation is written like websites and contracts and packaging and your Amazon keywords. And, and that's all translation and interpretation is spoken. So that can be live in person, it can be on a Zoom meeting, it can be over the telephone if you just have to have a, a quick call, and it can be conference interpreting. So we provide, there's multilingual chat, there's language testing. So we're really good at figuring out the best way to accomplish what you want to do with language. Sure. I'd love to hear if you're able to share like some types of clients that you've helped or even the different industries that you've served and what you've seen in terms of success and in, in moving toward global marketing. Sure. Yeah. We, um, it's interesting because we're, we're just working on some, um, case studies and we had, to, we were documenting numbers on that. And when we're looking at, translating websites, we're seeing export revenue, like double in size. We're seeing visitors of websites that have been translated increasing um, substantially. There was one that was close to 200% increase in visitors just from adding language in. We're seeing um, companies 
um, expand into and get new contracts with distributors or clients because they're translating um, brochures and materials that are going out. So, you know, so often people say, well, translation is a cost and I'm not sure I want to do that. But what they're not figuring in is if your, your clients or your prospects can't connect with you, then they're not going to come. And okay, now we have to talk about your book because that is completely <laughs> what you talk about. The uh, Your book is Jewelry Marketing Joy. And I so appreciated reading a copy of it um, because it completely talks about how you have to understand the value of your brand and really connect. And what I loved about your book is you threw out like all the different ways that you can do marketing. And by, by the time I was like, well, oh my gosh, I could do this. I could do this. I could do this, but how do I put it in a plan and how do I figure out to afford it? That was the next section of your book. So <laughs> wrapped it all together. So um, that's a good place to start, particularly if you're in jewelry, because all the examples in your book were jewelry um, manufacturers or creators. And um, I thought that was such a good resource. Oh, great. Thanks, Wendy. I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Also a COVID project, just like you. <laughs> That's fantastic. Something to keep us entertained. <laughs> so tell me, what are some like common mistakes that you're seeing out there in the marketplace when it comes to moving into a global market? I would love for my listeners to avoid making those mistakes. So what are they? Okay, number one is thinking English is the global language. So all the statistics show that people, you know, it's like 75% of bilingual people are more apt to come to your website and stay there and read if you provide in-language content. And well over half of them are willing to pay more money if you provide in-language content. So the numbers are right there that English is not the global language. And something, you know, it's, it's, since it's we're, we're talking to a lot of people in the jewelry industry, jewelry is an emotional buy. And so you not only have to make sure the language is there, but you have to make sure that emotional connection is there. So English is not the global language. If you want to increase your sales, put in translation. And the number two mistake is thinking that Google Translate is going to do that for you. So I have all sorts of examples of where Google Translate can, can go bad. And one of my favorite ones is um, the Mazda tagline that they came out with in Japan. It was Jinba Ite. Now, I, I love Mazdas. I've, I, 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 I'm on my second one. I'm a huge fan of their car. I don't know what it is. They just fit me. They ride nice, whatever. So um, Jinbai Tay captures a nice feeling that I can relate to, but it's really hard to put it in English words. It's that feeling of a horse warrior galloping across the field with a bow and arrow fully, you know, pulled and ready to, to go in. And it's feeling all at one with the horse. Now, see how many words I took to say that in English. We don't have a, a word for that. Maybe in the Cherokee language they do, but we don't, we don't in English. And so when I first put that into Google Translate, it came out with um, danger. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's far off. Tagline <laughs> for, for a car. The second time I put it into to Google, it came out as just Jimba. And the 
third time I put it in was just, just last week. And it was something like, you know, I've hit my center or something. I, I'll have to go look it up again as to what it is, but it was something getting closer, but you can see how each iteration of Google is changing and it's not capturing that. Um, so I think using the Google Translate plugin and then number three is where you put your language navigation. In, you know, the standard for the user is to put a globe up in the top right hand corner and then drop down to the language and make sure you translate what language it is. So even if you get really fancy and you, you know, show language by the country that they're coming in from or the language their browser is set to make sure you have the language switcher up there. Because, you know, if I lived in Taiwan, and you had my IP marked as living in Taiwan and wanting Chinese, I would still want to read it in English because I'm not going to buy off a Chinese site. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Why do you think that a lot of, or I don't, I don't even know what the percentage is, but why do you think that U.S. brands leave those global markets untapped? Is it like a nervous nervousness about it? Is it because they don't know how to approach this pursuit? What do you think is the is the limit? I I think it's fear. I think it's fear of languages and culture of the unknown. Um, and the number one thing that hits me across the podcast interviews that I do is that you can be successful, just stay curious, stay curious. Don't, don't you know, just people are going to do things differently. And if you stay curiously curious and you ask politely, you can figure things out. So yeah, and companies that export have on average 20% higher revenues. They're more profitable have higher valuations, they pay higher salaries, and they're more stable. So the companies that do go through that learning process and start to do it end up being stronger companies because when one market is down, another market can be up. Sure. Yeah. It could be a little bit of an insurance policy rather than putting all your eggs in one one country basket, I guess. <laughs> exactly. And the, and the other thing that's surprising is exports. Uh, the number one export uh, from the U.S. is services. So I've had a lot of um, service agencies, particularly B2B, that read uh, well, no, I can't say particularly B2B, but I can say that service people who have read my book are surprised, like creative marketing agencies, huh, I never thought about selling internationally. But there's so many companies that want to come into the United States, and there's so many ways to help their companies um, expand international. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's just taking the blinders off. That makes a lot of sense. So for our listeners, mostly uh, leaders at jewelry companies, solopreneurs at jewelry companies. What is the potential, do you think, for these product-based jewelry businesses specifically when it comes to global marketing? Why should they really like pay attention to this and consider it as a possibility? Who live outside of the United States like American products. They've got a good reputation. They're, um, you know, usually known as well-made. Um, there's something about the brand Halo that goes across the made in the USA. And plus, you're talking to a much larger market. So um, 
you can reach your target audience across different countries. Um, plus, the other thing is, is if you're selling your jewelry on Amazon or Etsy, they're global platforms. So why not add a little bit of translation and figure out, you know, call into Amazon. They've got huge supports for small businesses that want to go international and how you can distribute internationally. And so figuring out how to leverage their system that's already there is huge. Sure. That's such a good point. And one I didn't even think of all the marketplaces. I mean, I'm looking at Amazon shopping for whatever. And most of the products I see are, I don't know, from China or whatever country. And I think they might need your global translation help because sometimes I'm like, what are they trying to say about this product? That sounds a little crazy. <laughs> Gosh, I would love introductions to anytime you get a user manual where there's a poor translation or packaging, send me pictures, send me names. I love that because we put it all over social media as a learning opportunity. That's or, funny. There are a know, lot of examples. To... <laughs> oh, send them in, send them in to me. <laughs> So how does a business owner know if they're ready to take this plunge? Is there like a certain like key performance indicator in their business that should let them know they're ready to enter a global market? Or is it just more like a mindset thing? Like I'm ready to do this. Mindset thing. I see lots of companies. No, I don't see lots. I see some companies thinking global from the start. And they're usually millennials who have traveled that are very tech savvy. And they understand that if I put it out on the internet, anybody can find it. And so they think global from the start. And that's huge. I've seen other companies grow big um, and they didn't think global from the start. And then all of a sudden their website isn't easily modified and there's a lot of clunky stuff in the background that they don't do it. So if you're just starting a company, think global or think multilingual from the start. The other thing is the country that has the second largest Spanish speaking population is the U.S., so Mexico oh, is yes. number one, the U.S. is number two, and then you've got Spain and Peru and all the other Spanish-speaking countries. So if you're here in the United States, put some Spanish up on your website, even just a landing page. It's low money and enable people to buy the jewelry because um, they might do it from here. And then you can easily expand into Mexico and other Spanish-speaking countries. That is such an interesting point and such like a progressive way to think about branding because you're right. So many people, even in the US, even if we're not even going beyond the US, there are so many countries spoken here. And if you really want to like appeal to a diverse customer base, maybe making their life a little easier by speaking their language. Yes, yes. And then, you know, if you provide information in their language, they're more apt to come to your website and they're more apt to spend more money. So doing little things, you know, even if you're going to a jewelry convention, putting a little sign up that says welcome in multiple languages just brings people over. And if you don't speak the language, like I learned as a kid, there's still a way to converse, particularly in public when you're at a booth with you've got goods that you're selling. Yes. And jewelry so. is such an international industry. I mean, obviously, but for example, in August, I went to this 
really major trade show called JCK. And there are people there from Turkey, from Israel, from China, all over the world. And it's really important to remember that like the supply chain spans so many countries globally. And how does that affect the presentation of the final product too? Fantastic point, which brings us to the free supports that the government offers. There are step grants available for small businesses that want to go to international trade shows. So you can get a lot of your costs covered by applying for a step grant and then going international. And if you meet a jewelry distributor um, at one of these conferences that can distribute your product or, you know, a retail store that wants to carry it, you've, you've just there increased your sales. Wow. I didn't know about that. That's really amazing. Yeah. So if you're, if you're going to those international conferences, you might even want to look into getting a step grant. I can send you the, actually, you know, I can send it to you, but if anybody is interested, if you go to our website, Rapport Translations, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, translations and then just look for the little search magnifying glass on the top right and search step grants it'll bring you to a page where you can read about them and then you can click the list of them and find your contact at your state and reach directly out to them oh that's an excellent resource thank you sure sure (laughs) so is there a way i'm sure like a lot of smaller brands okay even if they're open to exploring entering global markets i'm pretty sure they're not just going to go to every country all at once when they start. Is there a way for them to know who to target first, where to begin, how to kind of dip their toe in the water and move forward with this? Excellent question. So I always recommend that you you think about your company strategy and then you you have to make sure that aligns. So if your your goal is to open one international market, then you look at your marketing strategy. You want to think about, you know, who are your buyers and where are you going to go? And then you can come up with your multilingual strategy. Now, with that said, it's interesting to me that a, a, a lot of companies in the US will first target. English-speaking countries. It's a natural. You think they speak the same language, although we have done translation for UK English from American English because they are slightly different. And with consumer marketing, you might want to consider that. But those you're going to have the most competition in. So there's other ways that people figure it out. It might be that um, you have friends or family that are going to be of assistance in the country. It could be that you're looking at your Google Analytics and we and you see a lot of inquiries coming in from a certain country. We had a client we were working with that was getting a lot of inquiries in from Germany. So he translated uh, a landing, uh, you know, a mini site of German on his website so people would come and find it and then he could optimize it in an increase. So if you're selling jewelry, you might get into a pocket of people in in a country that like it. So you can, if you're paying close attention to your analytics, some business owners want to travel a lot to a country. So say you, you know, you have a dream of going to Italy every year, maybe you pick a country like that. So there's all sorts of different options of how you get in. Um, But you can can go to your state contact and ask them to help you do a strategic analysis of what might make sense to go into. 
I so like the idea you. of choosing a country you'd like to travel to frequently and uh, making your business work around that. I think that's my favorite one. <laughs> a lot of people that do that, you know, it strategically might not make the most sense, but if you're going to open a market there and have to travel, why not make it someplace fun? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So we talked about a lot of the benefits, but I'm sure there are challenges that come up. It's not going to mm-hmm. be like a totally easy, like fancy free process. <laughs> what are some mm-hmm. things that someone might anticipate as challenges just so they're aware? Like what are the common issues that might come up in this transition to global markets? Uh, I think testing your brand name is one. Um, you've heard of all the examples. I mean, what funny one that comes to mind right now is in Iran, there is a detergent called barf. Well, that's not going to sell. Well yeah. mm. <laughs> they didn't test it. Um, we tested a brand name for a company because they had a product called uh, Take and Toss. It's a Tomi. And they took that international on that name and it didn't work because Europeans were like, well, do I take it? Is it reusable and I wash it or do I toss it? Is it disposable? I can't do it here in the U.S., uh, you know, there's more of a, well, I'll, it's cheap enough, I can throw it out or I could wash it and reuse it. Hopefully we're changing a little bit with that, but um, it just, the product didn't work well. So they can't, went back to the drawing board and came up with a new name, which was Sava with S with the two dots over the A, V-A. And we tested it across the multiple languages they were using it to where they were going to use it in Europe and found that that was going to be okay. So that was really smart of them to do. And it's, it's not really extensive to do. You can come to us and we can run it by translators and run them through the brand uh, name testing. So that would be one of the things. The other is um, maybe doing too much at one time. There was a um, travel agency startup, they had a new twist on how to do things. And they said, well, we're going to go global. And they tried to go all at once, but they didn't build their communities enough. So it ended up imploding because they didn't have the investments enough to, to support it. So start out with one market, figure out your process and then replicate it. Um, so I think those are two of the big things. And then that, I think the other for jewelry marketing would be thinking about um, the payment system, the currency exchange, how you're going to do that, um, and and um, um, and logistics. You're not going to have to worry about CE marks because they don't really fall in there. But that's where you can go to the state resources, and they can they can help you because there's all sorts of automated international payments now. That makes so much sense. So you mentioned about testing to, for example, the brand names to see if they would work in a certain market. What are some of the most common modes of testing? Like, are these focus groups? Are they customer surveys? What do you find to be effective? For testing for the jewelry or for the language? Um, I guess to test a marketplace to see if it's viable to enter with the brand that you want to enter with. Very good conversation with Stephen Pope yesterday who is called uh, the my Amazon guy he does everything to maximize your return on Amazon sales and he's a huge fan of just testing stuff so if you've got 
uh, like I'm completely into market research and go out to focus groups and ask, you, you know, have a professional run the focus groups and get the information that you can have for positioning, but that can be quite expensive. So if you're a smaller jewelry creator, um, you can put stuff on your website and test it really fast, you know, do all the A-B testing. So um, there was, I think I watched one of his videos that was talking, that was showing soaps and just not having the brand name on the soap made a huge difference because people wanted to see that it was individually wrapped and then how they laid the flower. So take different pictures, make sure they're professional pictures and then try different things and be, and don't be afraid to uh, switch them out quickly. Um, so I think, you know, if you're a smaller company, just, you know, start testing that way. Um, if you're talking about language testing, that's a different thing. I mean, you want to have somebody that's fully bilingual, understands the messaging, understands the culture behind the messaging that you're going to want to test so you can do it. Speaking of messaging and testing messaging, and we mentioned earlier that jewelry is a very emotional purchase, that there's emotion in the story. How can you ensure that that nuance is being communicated in the messaging? I think we, we sort of touched upon this in the episode, but I'd love for you to just focus specifically on this question. Oh, I think it's a fantastic question. There are about 2000 translation agencies just in the US and all of them have a different specialty. Uh, you know, there's probably <laughs> overlaps in them. But there are some agencies that do machine translation with post-human editing. That is not going to be a good marketing translation because that's going to get the gist across. It might work for lots of content where you just have to get the point across. Okay, there's other agencies that might use different translators every time you send some work in. So there's no consistency across. There's other agencies that specialize in... Um, like pharmaceutical uh, uh, translation. And so if you're doing anything with consumer product that you really need to have that emotional story behind it, you want to find somebody that really specializes in marketing translation. And the reason is, is the translators that they're using um, are going to be familiar with marketing. They're going to stay consistent on your product. And then they're also going to do some cultural adaptation to make sure that the story resonates with the culture that you're translating into. So if I give an example, I love this one from Staples. I use it quite a bit. <laughs> they were doing their tagline, make more happen. And they were taking the more out and putting other words in. So make work happen, make play happen. And they were going into multiple different languages. Our French translator got one of their their series that was make refrigerator art happen. Now, if you're in the United States, you know what refrigerator art is. You have a guess? You know what it is? Refrigerator art? Yes. Like magnets? I don't know. <laughs> it's your kid's art that you put under the magnet to celebrate their artwork. Right. Is that not a thing in other countries? <laughs> that is not a thing in France. 
the refrigerators for one thing, keeping food cold. So they don't have it filled with magnets and their kids art. So she came back and she said, this, this won't work. And so the option was to find something else that would work to replace that or just cut that one out and go with the other one. So that's the kind of cultural adaptation that you want somebody to watch out for. Otherwise, somebody's going to look at that, that campaign and go, what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like with jewelry, especially, it really needs that extra human touch to make sure it like actually makes sense. And that the feeling behind it is still being communicated that the words themselves are like less important. And it's more about like what's being shared. Absolutely. And in my book, I use an example of Nike. Um, they had this description. I, I think I did it on the Air Pegasus because they're my favorite running shoes. I've used them for years. And they had a description that was very fun and fast and outdoorsy. And then I took that description from their, uh, I took that description, put it into Google Translate and then back translated it. And it was like completely silly. It just missed the mark and the, the colors were off and it just didn't make sense. And I think I took description from their Spanish website and put that back into English and that didn't even go right. So um, you, you really have to capture capture that mood that you're going for, for jewelry. It's such an interesting concept and so important for people to just remember in general. And again, even within the U S and people speaking all these different languages and all these cultures, even if you don't even leave this, this market, how can you be sensitive to like all the cultures that are within the country where you live? Right, right. And that's you look if you're selling, like I mentioned, if you're going to a jewelry fair or you have a store or something like in the town, one town next to me, there's a big Brazilian Portuguese population. And I know the a printer that was there in town and he just put something like welcome you know, Portuguese speakers and his business increased because people just felt welcome going in there. Town south of me is a lot of Spanish speakers, you know, and so just simply putting up something that says welcome in here. Um, and then if you really need to talk to somebody, use telephone interpreting, you pay by the minute. Um, but probably in a jewelry transaction, if you get them in and they like the atmosphere of your, your you know, your store or your area, um, you, you could, uh, you could sell, you know, you could connect with the client and that's the same. You think about it the same way with your website is how am I welcoming people in? How am I giving them that feeling? And how am I taking them through the buyer's journey? So they don't want to leave or feel offended. Yes. I'm always telling clients that they forget that that e-commerce experience needs to feel like it might in an actual real store. And how are you kind of like welcoming, like you said, and guiding them and like making them feel like they're not just out there on the internet by themselves fending for themselves, you know? Yes. Did you talk about that in your book about Tiffany's? Was that one of the, I remember you Probably. talking about Tiffany. I use that I as an example so much that I probably did. <laughs> I literally I, I, just yesterday was using that as an example and their menu navigation and how like easy it is and friendly and really guiding you toward what you want, even if you don't even know what you want. <laughs> 
Right, right. And then you you make sure to have the colors because the colors would be in the store. You need that you need to match that in the website. And then you talk about colors for international. Um, there are some differences, but and so somebody asked recently for the checkout button. You know, does that have to be a certain color across different countries? And it was like no. It, it didn't have to be, a, there's not one single or, you know, a handful of colors that work best, but it has to be a contrasting color to the color of your website. So if you are thinking of going international, think about what some colors are that may work. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's such a great point. Wendy, this has been so interesting. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. And I would love if you have any final thoughts or you want to tell our listeners how they can find you. I would love for you to share that. Okay, thank you. Sure. We share all sorts of examples on social media. So you can find me through Linktree is, is just a place where you can go. And if you prefer uh, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, um, you can click on it, any of those and follow. So Linktree is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Wendy, W-E-N-D-Y P's P-E-A-S-E. And also on Linktree, you can find a link to our website. You can find a link to a couple of free pages of the book. The podcast is up there. So that's a good landing place. And then our website, we have a huge resource center there. Um, so you can go and search for anything about global marketing or translation language and read about it or watch videos. And that's rapport translations.com. And I spelled it out earlier. So you can find the step grant uh, context too. Yes. And I will link to all this in the show notes too. So my listeners don't have to sit there like taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks Wendy for, for being my guest today. It was such a pleasure to have you. And I know my listeners will benefit from your insights and perspective. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure to be able to speak to Wendy, and I hope you got as much value out of this conversation as I did. Again, check out the show notes for links to Wendy's book and podcast, as well as a link to book a free consultation with her if you're interested. Got any questions or feedback for me? You can always email me Larissa, that's L-A-R-Y-S-S-A -S -S at joyjoya.com. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend who'd appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe as well as leave a review on iTunes. To purchase a signed copy of my book, Jewelry Marketing Joy, visit joyjoya.com book for more information. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information about marketing services for your jewelry brand, visit joyjoya.com where you can download our free ebook, Proven Conversion Strategies for E-Commerce Jewelry Retailers.